Good morning, everyone. Let's gather together and we will kick off our last study of 2018. Oh, I see the tears. No, no tears this morning. That's fine. We're going to be back together in a few weeks anyway in 2019. Um, so this is the last study that we have in 2018 before Christmas. We will be back together on January 9th to do the second half of Acts. There are new bookmarks, purple, for Epiphany, I suppose. Um, although I don't know that that makes sense. But they're purple. And they're at both doors as you go out today. So grab a bookmark, stick it in your Bible. We'll be back off for a few weeks, but we'll be back together. And that will be on January 9th. Now, I do want to make a quick note that for those of you who are following along with our commentary series, N.T. Wright's Commentaries, there are two books for Acts. So if you've gotten one and not the second, then it's probably appropriate at some point first of the year to grab part two of his commentary. And if you're not reading along, don't worry. We still do all the stuff in the class. I um, just want to make a note that he has two different books for the first and second parts of Acts. And so they will be for sale in the bookshop or online as well. Now let's open with a prayer and we'll get started. The Lord be with you. Let us pray, God, we ask that you come down upon us and bless us in the season of Advent. Fill us with your spirit that we may have the strength of your purpose, the faithfulness to face whatever darkness that we have in this world with your light of hope. We pray for all those that we hold in our hearts and minds who need your healing touch, those we love but see no longer, and those who just flat out bug us, but we know you love them anyway. Bless our time together. Give us wisdom and send us forth from this place that we may bear witness to you over these next few weeks, and especially at Christmas. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Chapter 12 is a good one. I don't know if any of you read ahead, but it's pretty entertaining. So we have a number of things going on in chapter 12. Before we get going, a quick word, a little preamble moment about angels. So we see angels a couple times in chapter 12, and I just want to make sure we're all on the same page about what angels are. Angels are not fat babies with wings. Angels are kind of scary. They are fierce. They are, in our tradition, warriors. Yes, angels are sometimes messengers, but when you really come down to it, angels are, are a little intimidating. And so when we have moments when angels appear to people, think about what we're just going through in the next couple weeks. When an angel appears to Mary, Mary's first reaction is almost certainly fear. Angels are not sweet and they're not cuddly. We at St. Michael have a patron saint who is the only saint that was not human, first of all, and our saint is almost always depicted in full armor, sword-drawn fighting, right? I mean, St. Michael is fierce. And so we, I want us to have that in our mind because we often, I think people imagine something more along the lines of Cupid if when we say angel and not someone along the lines of St. Michael when we say angel. And there are two angel moments of note in chapter 12, both angel moments are pretty intense and intimidating. So now that we have gotten that out of the way, let's jump in. We've got a three-part chapter today. The first part is about Herod. Herod kills James. The second part is Peter's escape. And the third part is Herod's death. So as you can see, our chapter is bookended with Herod. So we're going to start with, who is this Herod? Herod, we might be confused with other Herods that have come before now. Herod is a common name. It is what you might say is almost the family name, although that's not entirely accurate. It you might consider it something along the lines of, say, what Caesar meant in Rome. Caesar, although was the first guy's name, 
became synonymous with the emperor. And Herod, although it was the first guy's name, was the kind of name that people would adopt when they became king of Judea. And so we are dealing with the third Herod referenced in the New Testament. Back in the beginning of the Gospels, we know that there was a Herod, Herod the Great, and he most notably sought to kill the babies. This is why Joseph fled with Mary and Jesus to Egypt in Matthew, because Herod the Great was looking to kill the children. His son, Herod Antipas, became the Herod and the king that Jesus went to during his trial. So when Jesus was arrested, put in trial in front of Pilate, in one of our gospel stories, Pilate sends Jesus to Herod, and Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. That Herod is Herod number two, the son of Herod the Great at the beginning of the Gospels. This Herod that we hear in chapter 12 of Acts is Herod number three. This Herod is Herod Agrippa, and Herod Agrippa was the son of one of Herod the Great's other sons, Aristobulus. <laughs> right. So Herod the Great had multiple children. He had two sons you should know. The first was the Herod that was Herod with Jesus's trial. The other son had a son named Herod Agrippa, and Herod Agrippa is the Herod who is king now in the, with the first century Christians. That's all right, that's pretty. That's a nice ringtone. I like that one. It'll take you a minute to find it. Oh, and she said it's going to take a minute. You want to say a prayer while I try and silence it? It's better than mine. I silence mine or else you might hear Mariah Carey's Christmas song as my ringtone. It's always my ringtone in December. All right, so, you know, real love lasts forever. Real love. So we've got three different Herods that we need to note for our first century Christian group, either Jesus as a baby, Jesus as an adult, or the first century Christians. Any questions about that before we move forward, just so we know who we're talking about? Good, I'm glad that's clear. We deal with some violent moments in chapter 12. The first is violence against one of the early Christian leaders, James. Herod is said to have gone after James, the brother of John, and killed him with a sword. This kind of violence is a little unusual for a monarch. If we really think about the way that monarchies tend to work, it is not likely the best idea to go against your people, at least if the people have not aggressed upon you first. And so what I want to make sure we understand here is that the first century Christians were not part of the power structure of Judea. They may have been Jews who were following Jesus, but they have differentiated themselves from the Jews that have the religious authority. Why that's important is because Herod, although he is Jewish, is really a warlord who represents Rome. What Rome has done, in a relatively smart way, is raised up a local family to rule the country in the way that they like. This family, the Herods, are loyal to Rome. And so what those Herods are doing is nurturing and maintaining a decent relationship with the religious leaders of that same area. So I'll say that again. Herod and his family are Jewish, but they're not the kind of religious Jews that we see with the high priest and the council. However, Herod knows that it is politically valuable and expedient to make sure that he kind of stays on the good side of the religious authorities. And so what they do is they complement each other whenever they need some help. These early Christians would have most certainly been bugging the religious leaders. And it makes total sense 
that the religious leaders would have gone to Herod, the political leader, and asked for some help or backup. Herod kills James with the sword. Let's read that passage real fast. Verse 2. Herod had James, the brother of John, killed with the sword, and after he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. There is a lot of calculation in those two verses. The first is we know that James was not killed by religious leaders. Otherwise, he would have been stoned. Had James been identified as a heretic, he could have gone in front of the council and been stoned like who? Stephen. James was not stoned. James was killed by the sword, which means this was a political assassination. I'm sorry? Your version says beheaded? Okay. Okay, so there are ways to interpret this. Um, killed by a sword, whether that's beheaded, skewered, whatever you want to say, is not a religious killing. That's the point I want you to make, is that this was a political execution. But it was a calculated political execution because Peter is the one who's in charge. Herod did not go after Peter first. Herod went after James, who's sort of a second-tier leader of the community. But when he saw that the Jews liked that he went after James, then he knew he had the social capital to go after the real head of the Christians, Peter. And so he does. He uses James as a way of gauging how far he can go and whether his necessary uh, I was going to say accomplices, whether his necessary partners in governing the area, the Jewish leadership, the religious leadership, appreciated his action. When he knew they did, he went and arrested Peter and had him jailed. What's interesting to me about this section is that Herod establishes himself as the kind of leader that the common people would not like. And we see later that there is a moment of celebration from the people who like Herod, but that ultimately he is brought down by an angel. That's angel number two. One final note about this beginning of this section. In these first few verses, we have two references to the Passover. Twice, Luke mentions that this time of the period of time in which this action is taking place is festival of unleavened bread. That's the first reference. And then he actually literally says Passover in the second reference. In a few verses, he makes sure that we know that it's his Passover time. Can anyone think why it's important theologically that Luke links what's about to happen to the Passover? What happens when it's the Passover? God delivers his people. So in the first Passover, God delivers the Jews, well, the Israelites, out of Egypt. In the most recent, well, there are two recent Passovers of note in the New Testament. The first comes with Jesus, who is arrested when? At the Passover. Then we have, at the Passover, the Spirit falls on the disciples and they begin to preach. The idea of deliverance is linked very closely and theologically with the moment of Passover. And so Luke makes a really clear point, just in case you missed it, it's still Passover. He says twice. Because what's about to happen, he is connecting to these big moments of deliverance of the past. And his readers would have immediately recognized that. So any questions on this opening section before we get to Peter? The question is whether we know or not that Herod believed in God. So I'll answer that by saying everyone did in some way believe in God at that point. The, the idea of atheism is a relatively modern philosophical construct. Atheism 
is also really difficult to actually be. Most people have faith in something. And even people who might call themselves atheists often have faith in empirical truth, like science. Now, they may not call science God, but there is still a fundamental belief in something bigger than them. Atheism could on one level just be saying, I don't believe in God in some fantasy way. But true philosophical atheism is a very difficult uh, stance to take. Um, if you've ever read any of Nietzsche, that kind of true atheism ultimately ends with a complete loss of any purpose or hope of any kind. True atheists have nothing to hold on to. So why go through any difficulty of life for any reason at all? Because none of it matters. That's, philosophically, that is true atheism. Oh, that's an interesting perspective. So the perspective being, he, he doesn't necessarily consider consequences. So perhaps there's a belief in God, but a narcissistic confidence that he's above it. We know in many cultures, and we see, we see Herod, it gets the best of Herod at the end of chapter 12, that leaders can often get confused about their own identity. So I think we talked about it last year with Luke. The idea of Jesus being the Son of God is meant to directly line up with the idea of the Emperor of Rome being the Son of God. It is the way in which the Emperor of Rome was described because, because there was a sense that when an emperor died, he became a god. And so the child of the emperor who became emperor is now what? Well, now the Son of God. And that is a slippery slope into beginning to define a leader as divine. And Herod certainly gets confused about his own identity. In the same way that, of course, we see in some cultures, I mean, pharaohs of Egypt is the obvious example, where there was an explicit understanding that they were divine. Jesus is understood in these first few centuries, theologically, as being that kind of divine. It's only in the 300s, in the 4th century, that Jesus' divinity is defined in a way that actually is different than the sort of divine leaders in other cultures had been understood. And that's just, it's not because they didn't want Jesus to be different. They just were working out of their own understanding of the world. And that was the way that they were formed. That leaders tend to be divine in some capacity. And was it fully divine or half divine? And that kind of theological stuff they struggled with for a few hundred years until they sort of nailed it down that he was both. I do think that Herod certainly has no fear of God, no healthy fear of God. And so he's acting out in a way that, you know, especially in hindsight, doesn't work out for him. I will say that what we have here is a different, is a distinction between religious Jewish people and culturally Jewish people. In the same way that I think we can all very confidently say there are religious Christian people and there are culturally Christian people, right? All those people that I regularly meet who say they're, you know, I just had the other day when I'm sitting talking to someone and having an interesting conversation and he references something about church and I said, oh, what church do you go to? And he was like, oh, St. Michael. And I was like, oh, because I'm not so sure, you know? Um, and, and so I pushed him, and he was like, yeah, we don't really go much. I was like, yeah, well, then you don't go there. I mean, let's just be honest, all right? So, you know, the, I think that we are often very generous when it comes to what it means to be religiously Christian. We like to be generous to people who claim it but don't do anything about it. And in a way, I think that we are shifting into a point of, in time where we kind of have 
a similar identity to Jews today, which is there are lots of people who are Jewish who they are not religious, but they identify culturally. And then there are people who are both cultural and religious. And that's what you see here with Herod is there's a cultural Jewish identity, but there's not a religious identity. He's not living this out in any way. He just happens to be within that cultural line. All right, any other questions about that before we move on to the good stuff? Okay, this is one of my favorite sections of the entire Bible. So, this little middle section of chapter 12 is kind of great, and it's funny. And if you didn't read it ahead of time, we're going to read most of it because it's just too funny not to read it. So, Luke is a really good storyteller. Of all the gospel writers, he's the one that tells the stories. The other gospel writers communicate information. But Luke actually crafts pretty good stories. And this is one of those great stories that Luke tells. And so we're just going to read it, because even if you read it this morning while you were cramming for Bible study, it's good enough to read again. So Peter has been arrested by Herod, and he is in prison. So look at verse 6. The very night before Herod was going to bring him out, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while guards in front of the door were keeping watch over the prison. Stop. We learned in the earlier verses that Herod put four sets of guards on Peter. Excuse me. Peter is not that big a deal. He is a fisherman from Galilee, okay? He's one man who is not a fighter, not a soldier. What is this about? I think what this is about is Herod knows something is up with these people, right? There is enough that has happened to where maybe Herod doesn't want to admit it in any public way, but we see in these roundabout implied ways, Herod believes something. Maybe he doesn't know what he believes, but these Christian people are not normal. And so he takes this seemingly simple man and surrounds him. So not only does he have four sets of guards on Peter, listen again to what is described here. Peter is bound with two chains. Really, one's not enough. Peter's bound with two chains, sleeping between two soldiers. Really? While guards are at the door, keeping watch of the prison. Picture this. It is way overkill. All right? They are surrounding Peter, even in sleep, because he expects something is going to happen. Well, he's right. So, <laughs> look at verse 7. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He tapped Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his wrists. The angel said to him, Fasten your belt and put on your sandals. He did so. Then he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Okay, are you in the story? I mean, that's good stuff, right? I mean, I can see it. I'm excited. What's going to happen? And then, as the rescue is beginning, we are kind of put in this mindset of, like, Mission Impossible. I mean, can you hear it? Like, dun Dun, dun, dun. You know, they're, getting, they're coming out of the cell, and the angel's leading Peter around. You know, and imagine, right, he is climbing over and walking past all of these soldiers, right? They're sleeping next to him. They are guarding the door. They are out in the hallway. So it's very much like laser sights and, you know, kind of like smoke and mirrors sort of stuff as they get out of here. So the rescue begins. Look at verse 9. Peter went out and followed the angel. He did not realize that what was happening with the angel's help was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. After they had passed the first and the second guard, they came before the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went outside and walked along a lane when suddenly the angel left him. At this point, it should be kind of funny that Peter thinks he's hallucinating or something right? This is a dream. He is certain this is not actually happening, right? So I imagine Peter's like, sure, angel, I'll go with you. And he's walking out of the gate that opens by itself, which is like probably the only automatic door in the Bible. And so <laughs> the gate opens by itself, and Peter is 
not even sure what's going on here. So we skip on down, verse 11, next. When Peter came to himself, so he actually kind of woke up and realized this is true. He said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hands of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And as soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many had gathered and were praying. Again, pause. Peter's their leader. Peter's been arrested and imprisoned and surrounded by guards right after Herod has killed James. It is absolutely likely that the community, the Christian community, expected Peter was dead the next day. And so what do they do when you expect that your leader's about to be killed? Well, they gathered and they prayed. So this is the middle of the night. They are praying. And they're praying fervently that Peter might be spared or saved. And Peter knows this. And so when he realizes he's actually not hallucinated the angel, but been rescued by the angel, he thinks, well, where can I go? So picture it's nighttime. It is dark in the city where most people don't like him, and he is known. He's just in the middle of the street. He's got to get out of the street. And so he goes to where he knows his friends are praying. And this is where it gets funny. So, runs over to this door, Mary's house, Verse 13, when he knocked at the outer gate, a maid named Rhoda came to answer. On recognizing Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the gate, she ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the gate. That's funny. Luke is telling a funny story, right? Rhoda is so overcome that she doesn't let Peter in. So Peter is thinking he's got to get off the street or he's dead. Like, he's just been rescued by an angel, which doesn't make a lot of sense. And now he's out in the street, and he knows he's got a minute to make this work. And so he's banging on the gate. Rhoda comes, so shocked, she just turns and leaves him there. So she goes back, and they say to her, when Rhoda says, you know, I've seen Peter, you're out of your mind. But she insisted that it was so, and they said, it's his angel. What does that mean? That means they expect Peter's dead. And now Peter, in spirit, has come back to them. Meanwhile, <laughs> that's so funny. I love this. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. And then when they opened the gate, they saw him and were amazed. So I just, I love this little piece of storytelling because Luke is having fun with this. Luke has this miraculous rescue, super secret agent style. And then this funny moment where Peter's trying to get off the street, but he can't because the people inside are so focused on praying for Peter's rescue, they missed that Peter was rescued. <laughs> that is funny stuff because that is such a church, right? So concerned with doing something that they don't realize that something has been done. I mean, that's, that's funny, okay? It's such a cautionary tale, right? They were so earnest in wanting Peter to be rescued that they're praying through the night and don't realize Peter's been rescued. Oh. <laughs> Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. That is the funniest line. Okay. So as you might imagine in this story, morning comes and it's not going to turn out well for all those guards who were supposed to be watching Peter. Verse 18, when morning came, there was no small commotion among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and could not find him, he examined the guards and ordered them to be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Herod is not a good guy, right? These guards did effectively nothing wrong. Right? It was a miraculous rescue. Yet Peter got out. And so Herod executes all the guards who were supposed to be watching him. And then it says Herod went down. Again, remember, Jerusalem, Judea, it's elevated. And so he goes down, even though he's going north to the coast, in order to go back to his palace. So I think I referenced last week or two weeks ago, 
Caesarea Maritima was a city on the coast where the Roman governors would have lived along with the Judean king, a lovely Mediterranean villa on the water. And so Herod's done with this, right? You can imagine he just threw up his hands and he said, I'm out. And so he went back to his little coastal hideaway. There are two points of note in this story that I don't want us to miss. The first is that <clears throat> Peter is vindicated, right? We are, we are given the note, the literary note by Luke twice. This is the Passover. People will be delivered and Peter is delivered, vindicated for who he is and what he has been doing by God directly. We have to remember that life is not easy for these people. They are trying to be faithful, trying to do what they think God has called them to do in a culture that is against them. They're being judged by the religious authorities. They're being killed by the political authorities. And all the while, they're not doing productive stuff like working a job. I mean, this is not easy. They've made lots of sacrifices. And this kind of moment for them is going to be hugely motivational. Peter's rescue is going to be the kind of mountaintop, miraculous experience that these people really need in order to make sure that they keep the faith, that they actually keep moving forward. This is Passover, and we know multiple things have happened on Passovers. There's only one Passover a year, which means years have happened between Jesus' death and this moment. How many years? We don't know. But it's easy to assume years of this kind of experience, where they are hiding in homes, praying in secret, trying not to get arrested, trying not to get executed. And if you can imagine that kind of situation and the pressure and the anxiety and the fear that they would have been constantly living under, I don't think you did though. <laughs> so if you can imagine the kind of pressure that they are under, this experience with Peter is going to be a gift of hope for them. God is still with them. God still wants them doing what they're doing. God is still going to deliver them as a whole, even if one or two people may be put under pressure or execution, even execution. God's still with the whole community. The second thing I want to make sure that we note is back to my friend, Rhoda. Rhoda, bless her heart, she and the rest of this community should, I think, give us some comfort and hope. Here are people witnessing miraculous events, and they are still missing the point in general. They're there praying. That is so nice. They're certainly not going to charge the prison to rescue Peter or else they're all going to be killed, right? So I, I get it that they're doing something, but in their genuine, well-intended prayer, they're missing what's actually going on around them. As we noted before, a cautionary tale for church people. We can do lots of good things for very good reasons, and if we're not careful to constantly remind ourselves we can be looking to do good things and miss good work being done around us. How many times, I say this with caution, how many times have we prayed for something to happen rather than just doing it? There's a great song that's on the radio where the person goes through and says, I see this bad thing, I see that bad thing, I see that bad thing, and I see all these things happening, and God, why don't you do something about it? And then the refrain comes, and it says, the voice I heard in return said, I sent you. 
It's easy for us to pray, hope, cross our fingers, all the good things that the world will turn out better than it is. But let us not forget that while we're praying, we still have to actually do something. And that we've been sent to be doers too. Rhoda is a lovely, funny gift to remind us that we actually have that strength in us to take action for the change we want to see in the world too. Any questions or comments before we move on to the third section? All right. Herod has gone off to pout back at his little coastal villa. And while he's there, he begins to mistreat more people. So you've got representatives. What, what basically happens in a couple verses is that some people come to him trying to get him to help them with their food. It is not unreasonable to think <clears throat> that Judea, Palestine, would have been a decent food producer. I think we've talked about this in here before, but Israel is a long, a tall, skinny country. And if you imagine Israel like a parfait, the bottom third is a desert. And the middle third is <clears throat> a relatively dry, arid area, but can still grow some stuff. The middle third of Israel looks very much kind of like a Tuscany. Not super moist and not, hold on, I have something in my throat. <clears throat> not super moist, not fertile land, but it can grow some stuff. Things like olives, right? You go to Tuscany, you see lots of olive trees. Sunflowers, same kind of thing in Israel. So they have great olives, good oil, all that good stuff, but they're not growing crops because it's just not enough water and the, and the soil is not good enough. In the northern third of Israel, that's where you get some good crop-producing land. It is very plausible that Judea at this time could have been a source of food for some of the other areas, especially on the east of Israel, what would today be Iraq, Jordan, because those lands are not easy to use to grow food. They still need things like grain, and so people from those lands could have very easily come over to Israel to buy just food stuff. That's really what we have at the beginning of this third section of chapter 12. People are coming over wanting some help, and Herod is flatly declining to help them. Herod is not in a good mood, but Herod is still very popular with his groupies and his fans. And like any good narcissistic monarch, he has surrounded himself with people who think that he is the best thing ever. So go to verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat on the platform, and delivered a public address to the people. The people kept shouting, the voice of a god and not of a mortal. And immediately, because he had not given the glory to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. That's, that's kind of funny. So here we have Herod in all of his self-loving glory, surrounding himself by the flunkies who will yell all of these wonderful things at him. And at some point, I don't know, is it God? Yes. God has an angel strike him down. He's eaten by worms and died. So what is interesting about this, I just want to note that the way Luke told this story is that he didn't die and was eaten by worms. That happened first. So in my mind, I see this dramatic scene of a man in royal robes almost falling apart in front of the people. 
um, melting away. You know the end of like uh, of the Raiders of the Lost Ark when they see the Ark and they kind of melt. I mean that's that's sort of the image I have of Herod sort of melting in front of the people. It's lovely, and so this this end is in itself a story of vindication. Luke has a little moment in chapter 12 where he, in essence, tells a microcosm, a little microcosmic story that mirrors the larger story of deliverance and vindication. Herod, who starts off at the beginning as the person with the power, wielding his power in an ugly way against these faithful people, is in the end of chapter 12 the one who actually gets hit and hurt and dies. And in that way, God again marks the vindication of the faithful. How are we doing? I'm so early today. We see at the end of this chapter, verse 24, the word of God continued to advance and gain adherence. Luke tells a very complete story such that we know that through faith, these early Christian disciples are actually gaining ground in what would be sort of a, a sacred battle for the truth. There are, you know, you go two steps forward and one step back. There are moments when they have setbacks, like James's execution. But as the story continues, they are progressing forward. It's not always easy, but when they come up against something hard, in the end, they ultimately make it farther down the field than, they, than where they were when they began. That kind of message is important for us. We, not only do we live, as human people, we are we default to thinking that whatever is happening to us right now is the most important thing ever. And we have to be reminded that no one of us is that special. No one of us is that important. No one of our great achievements is really that great. No one of our great failures is really that bad. That it's not about us most of the time. And yet, we live in a world where we are constantly barraged. At any point, we can get as much information as we want, and it is saturating and stressful and gives us all anxiety. It's important to remember stories like this as reminders that the arc of salvation that God works through is very, very big, and that God's work is being done in small ways and big ways. And we are a part of that kind of work. No one of us begins and ends that work. But we're all invited into that work whenever we are able in our lifetime. And even when we put that work down for a time, we can pick it back up. I like to say to people, again, I'll go back to you know the random people I see around the city who tell me they go to church here when they don't. I always say, we're in the redemption business. That's what we do. Just come on back. I mean, there's no judgment there, right? Just come back. You can never be gone too long or do something too bad that you cannot come back. And I think that we don't, I don't think we tell people that enough. I think we probably can in the simplest way just remind people that anything they do can be redeemed. Anything. Most of us who sit here in a midweek Bible study, we're really not doing bad stuff. I mean, we're all doing things that we would like not to do, right? Most of that, though, is small. And we're not really, we're not executing people. We're not, you know, overtaking nations. We're not undermining families. We're not doing the really bad stuff. But we as... Christian people believe that sin is a sin is a sin, and to be reminded that even the worst of anything we can do, 
God can redeem is a gift to a lot of people who might feel like they have gone too far away from where they are supposed to be to ever return. We know better, but how often do we actually say that to people? If we did say that to people, whenever I say it, and I say it a lot, we're in the redemption business, I see, I see a little brightness in their face because they don't expect that. They expect the judgment of not having been at church, which is in itself sad that that has somehow become the expectation of people, that churches just simply judge constantly. It's probably not untrue. But if we can explicitly, not, not just not judge, but actually say that we are not, and to be the kind of person that invites people in, then I think we can actually progress more. People need this. People live alone, lonely. They feel separated and disconnected. The stuff they see on the news seems so big. We need each other. And I think if we are the kind of people, we don't have to be great theologians. We don't have to be able to recall Bible verses. We don't have to get into the mess of fighting around issues. We can just actually be kind. And not in a tacit way, but in an explicit way. And that kind of thing makes a difference. All right, I'm done preaching. Um, questions, thoughts about this chapter? Maybe. <laughs> Something like that. So the question is, going back to when Herod was eaten by worms, which I think is a great way to begin a question. Could we explain this away in some... Uh, tangible sense. Like, did he have a stroke and fall over? Did he have a seizure and fall over? Did he have a heart attack or something, right? We can certainly... I, I, heard, I heard one one commentator said that this scene could be explained away by things like a... Um, not, a not a tapeworm, but a, um, a parasite, where it could have literally... I mean, this is... This is in the middle of, you know, a period of time when parasites are common, right? I mean, that, that sort of foodborne, waterborne problems are pretty common. Could he have had a parasite that, and I'm sorry, this is a little gross, that could have, like, like exploded yeah. or something? I mean, sort of ruptured? I mean, could something have ruptured internally that, yes, I mean, sure, but it sure does sound more fun to say that the angel came down and made worms eat him. You know, I, I always, the, I think the bigger question that you may be asking is, when moments like this happen in scripture, did they happen the way the storyteller wrote? Or are they sensationalizing something they did not understand that we could actually today perhaps explain away? I, I had someone ask me once, you know, why doesn't God perform miracles anymore? Similar kind of question. And I think that miracles still happen, but that we don't believe them most of the time. And we try to explain them away because there's, we naturally want a sense of control. We don't like feeling like we're not in control. That is not comfortable. And miracles, even good ones, are scary in the sense that we have no control. Peter's in prison and God decides to break him out. Well, why didn't God save James? Was James not worth it? But Peter was? Right? We can get very messy really fast. And so as we read these stories, I think we have to read them kind of in two parts. The first part is I think it's okay to read them as it just happened that way. The other part is the author of the story understands, let me put it differently, the author of the story wrote the story this way for a reason. What is Luke's reason for telling the story this way? Even if we don't want to go so far as to say it actually happened that way, 
which is fine. We don't have to read it literally. Luke understood it, understood something happened, and when he told that story, he told it this way. What is really his point? And so for me, the point of a chapter like 12 is that God wins in the end. I mean, that's what I get out of it. Um, and we are very, I think we are helped by that message. That is one of those truths we cannot explain, but is still real. And in essence, that's what we do in our own, in our own walk, in our own salvation story, is all of us in some way, whether it's right now or it's been in the past, or maybe we know it's coming, will go through really bad stuff. And when we go through that really bad stuff, I think it's important that we don't necessarily ask the question, why is God doing this to me? If you have to ask that question because it's part of, of a grief process, it's okay. Don't feel bad about it. But I think the higher level is finding a really deep hopefulness that this is not all there is and that the pain is temporary. Doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't mean we wish it on anybody. But that in the end, God wipes away every tear and everything is redeemed. And Luke, I think, tells this story of chapter 12 because the real point is redemption. That's what we should take away. Why do bad things happen to good people is hard stuff. We can talk about, that's called theodicy. Yes. We can talk about theodicy another day when I have more than one minute. Yeah. Last. Einstein said, there are two ways to live in this world. Either everything's a miracle, either nothing is a miracle, or everything is a miracle. It's similarly to, I think it's C.S. Lewis who said, is there a God or not? Well, if there is and we believe, then we're good. If there is and we don't believe, we're in trouble. Why not go ahead and believe? And that's not exactly what he said, but it was basically what he said. <laughs> so, all right. Thank you all very much. Have Merry Christmas to you. See you in January.